wonder how you're feeling at the moment as you wake up each morning to new news about what's happening in Ukraine. Thursday morning, we woke up and saw pictures like this one. I think, it's, I think I've got it here for you. You remember this on Thursday morning? The uh, bombing of the maternity hospital uh, and the destruction. And uh, I don't know whether it's uh, because it's not that long ago uh, for me that uh, I was in a maternity hospital or, um, or whatnot, but I, I just found these images to be particularly shocking. You can, you can take it away now to spare our minds. Uh, and then last night, I was watching the news and I heard a mother speak about how she's deciding to only eat once a day in one of these sieged cities so that her ch children can have enough to survive. It's just absolutely horrifying. It's horrifying to watch from the comfort of my couch with my fully stocked pantry and my relative safety, let alone to be those women, to be those men, to be those children. What a horror it must be. And I tell you those stories and remind you of them because those scenes are something like the scenes where we have for us described in Lamentations chapter 2, really the whole book. It's a scene of total destruction as an enemy nation has laid waste to Jerusalem. Chapter 1 gave us this lament of the, over the city of Jerusalem described as, as this woman in, chapters one to, uh, in verses 1 to 11 and then the, the woman spoke in the poem in verses 12 to 22 and she expressed her great uh, desolation and her great bereftness at the horrible situation which has overcome her, that she's been besieged, she's been fallen, she's been destroyed. And now we move in chapter 2 to the, the writer of this uh, beautiful piece of poetry, perhaps Jeremiah, though we're not too sure, express this passionate and graphic account of the complete and utter devastation which he himself has observed. And he's overcome by it. And he speaks to Jerusalem and, uh, and, and asks... Jerusalem to pray and, and Jerusalem makes a bit of a feeble attempt as we'll see at the end which is understandable. As the writer describes this scene, this devastation, he also gives it a theological framework, one that we're not able to give to the current world events in the Ukraine. But he describes the wrath of God is what has caused this ultimately. That, that, that Israel has in some sense brought this destruction on herself. God has allowed the Babylonians to come to capture and to destroy. And it's a truly horrible experience. Let me just read to you a few of the verses again. And imagine what this must have looked like and felt like. 
Verse 2, without pity, the Lord has swallowed up all the dwellings of Jacob. In his wrath, he has torn down the strongholds of daughter Judah. He has brought her kingdom and its princes down to the ground in dishonour. Verse 8, the Lord determined to tear down the wall around daughter Zion. He stretched out a measuring line and did not withhold his hand from destroying. He made ramparts and walls lament together. They wasted away. He continues, her gates have sunk into the ground, their bars he has broken and destroyed. The king and princes are exiled among the nations. The law is no more. The prophets no longer find visions from the Lord. The elders of daughter Zion sit on the ground. They have sprinkled dust on the heads and put on sackcloth. The young women of Jerusalem bowed their heads to the ground. My eyes fail from weeping. I am in torment within. My heart is poured out on the ground because my people are destroyed, because children and infants faint in the streets of the city. They say to their mothers, where is the bread and wine? As they faint like the wounded in the streets of the city, as their lives ebb away in their mother's arms. This is truly devastating. Houses and city destroyed. The people sort of sitting there in just stunned silence. You can all think of those images of the, of the, of the woman or the child in the war-torn nation who is just sitting there with that kind of vacant look on their face, shell-shocked by what they have experienced. The endless weeping, the children killed and going hungry. Scenes that seem very abstract to us down here in Tasmania, but scenes that are very real in our very broken world and which we're being exposed to daily at the moment. But it's not just when Ukraine gets invaded that these sorts of things happen around our world. And it can be easy to just sort of dismiss or, or just move on from these sorts of passages. But imagine, I want you to do the uncomfortable job of imagining. Imagining you lived through the destruction of Hobart. And as a result, your children are beginning to starve to death on your lap. Would you, would you have anything good to say? Would you be able to turn your lips to praise? Would you come along to church on Sunday looking for a pick-me-up to keep you going for another, another week? I'm not sure that's the headspace I'd be in as I watched Amity or Nora beg me for food, as I sat in the ruins of my home wondering... Why has this come upon me? I want you to feel the depths of the pain of the people and the city of Jerusalem in 587 BC because it is truly horrific. It's not glib. There's no she'll be right, mate. It's terrible. It's humanity coming face to face in this particular case with the consequences of sin and the judgment of God. It's terrifying, it's fearful, and it's horrible. 
And it's not just the destruction of the city that makes it so bad. It's not just the suffering of the people that makes it so bad. They've seen the complete and utter dismantling of their whole way of even worshipping and engaging with God. God has brought this destruction on them and left them. It's like a a stab in the side when you're already completely and utterly down and out. Verse 6, he, God, has laid waste to his dwelling like a garden. He has destroyed his place of meeting. The Lord has made Zion forget her appointed festivals and Sabbaths. In his fierce anger, he has spurned both king and priest. The Lord has rejected his altar and abandoned his sanctuary. He has given the walls of her palaces into the hands of the enemy. They have raised a shout in the house of the Lord as on the day of an appointed festival. God has destroyed not only the city, He's allowed the Babylonians not, not only to come in and cause this complete chaos, destruction and suffering, but he's left his temple and he's allowed that to be destroyed too. He's made it impossible for people to come to the, the centre of, of, of the place where he is worshipped, the temple in Jerusalem. There's no more festivals, it's not possible anymore. Everyone's gone, dead and the city is destroyed. All these vital elements of what it meant to be God's person is part of God's nation in God's land. It's destroyed, it's desecrated, it's gone. This is hell on earth. Completely separated, forsaken, it's, it's terrible. And as the the, 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 the writer of this poem surveys the, the scene in front of him. He doesn't have a lot, he, he hasn't got anything to really, he can't say anything, he's, he's lost for words. He, he's living in the midst of the horror. You remember, he's one of these people. What can I say for you, verse 13? With what can I compare you, daughter Jerusalem? To what can I liken you that I may comfort you, virgin daughter Zion? Your wound is as deep as the sea. Who can heal you? I don't have any words for this. Your pain is is deep. And yet we see as well, it's in some sense self-inflicted. Over many, 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 many hundreds of years, Jerusalem has allowed herself to be led astray, to walk away from God, to listen to false prophets instead of the true ones who were sent time and again. Amos came some 200 years before this and warned the people and Jeremiah is there right before this warning the people, stay true to God and his covenant promises or you will face a terrible fate. It comes up in the Old Testament again and again and again and again. And the poet says, the visions of your prophets were false and worthless. They they listened to the ones who told them the nice stuff they wanted to hear. They did not expose your sin to ward off your captivity. The prophecies they gave you were false and misleading. And now, verses 15 and 16, the city is being made fun of. It's been scoffed at by the enemies. They're being judged. 
This tragedy is the root at its root caused by sin and by the judgment of God that comes upon it. And what does he say to them to do in light of all this? Well, the first thing is a bit strange, it seems, in one sense, but his call to them, having kind of said, your pain is deep, I have no words, this is a terrible tragedy, it, 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 it was preventable, but yet here we are and it sucks. What, what, what should we do? Verse 17, acknowledge God and his sovereignty. Zion stretches out her hands, but there is no one to comfort her. The Lord has decreed for Jacob that his neighbours become his foes. Jerusalem has become an un- unclean thing among them. This is all being part of God's sovereign plan. This could have been avoided. But God has fulfilled his word. And it's a word that he has given, not just with the coming of Amos 200 years ago, not just with the coming of Jeremiah, this is a word that was there before they even got into the promised land. Deuteronomy 27 and 28, go and have a read of those chapters where Moses warns the people, God is your God and he will bless you But if you fail to keep my decrees, you will face judgment. And it comes again uh, in Leviticus too. And I just wanted to read to you a little chunk of Leviticus uh, because you may not be familiar with some of the language of the Old Testament about this. But from Leviticus chapter 26, I'll start at verse 14. Uh, The first uh, first 13 verses of that chapter are about how good it's going to be as God's people listening to him, living under his rule and reign. But from verse 14, it's the opposite. It's the flip side, if you will. If you will not listen to me and carry out all these commands, and if you reject my decrees and abhor my laws and fail to carry out all my commands and so violate my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will bring on you sudden terror, wasting diseases and fever that will destroy your sight and sap your strength. You will plant seed in vain because your enemies will eat it. I will set my face against you so that you will be defeated by your enemies. Those who hate you will rule over you and you will flee even when no one is pursuing you. And that's just step one. Because it goes again. If after all this you will not listen to me, verse 18, I will punish you for your sins seven times over. Verse 21, if you still remain hostile to me, I will multiply your afflictions seven times over. Verse 23, if in spite of these things you do not accept my correction but continue to be hostile towards me, I will be hostile towards you. Verse 27, if in spite of this you still do not listen to me, I will continue to be hostile towards you. It goes on and on and on until verse 40. But if they will confess their sins and the sins of their ancestors, their unfaithfulness and their hostility toward me, which made me hostile toward them so that I sent them into the land of their enemies, 
Then when their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they pay for their sin, I will remember my covenant with Jacob and my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham and I will remember the land for the land will be deserted by them and will enjoy its Sabbaths while it lies desolate without them. They will pay for their sins, yet in spite of this, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not reject them or abhor them so as to destroy them completely, but for their sake I will remember the covenant with their ancestors, whom I brought out in the sight of nations to be their God, for I am the Lord. Sin is serious. Sin has consequences. And yet God is good, even as he brings judgment God's covenant promises to be with his people are never overturned. He will always bring them back, even if they are in the midst of judgment. The promise is that they will be brought back. And I could have read you any number of other passages in the Old Testament that speak of this. But moving back into Lamentations, having told them to acknowledge that this is all part of the, the plan, like we didn't repent and now this is what has happened to us, he encouraged us in verse 18, cry out to God. The hearts of the people, verse 18, cry out to the Lord. You walls of Dida's iron, let your tears flow like a river day and night. Give yourself no relief, your eyes no rest. Sit there in the midst of the pain and the suffering and the horror and cry and cry out to God because actually you have nowhere else to go. There is no one else who can save you or your city or your family or your children. It is only God. Come back to him. Arise, verse 19, cry out in the night as the watchers of the night begin. Pour out your heart like water in the presence of the Lord. Lift up your hands to him for the lives of your children who faint from hunger at every street corner. Come back to God. Come with repentant hearts into his presence in the midst of your pain and ask for his mercy. And so we see at the end of the poem, Jerusalem makes an attempt to pray. But it's not one of acknowledgement of sovereignty and uh, repentance of sin. It's just a, an expression of lament. This, this sucks, God. Look and consider my plight. Verse 20. Lord, look and consider. Whom have you ever treated like this? Should woman eat their offspring, the children they have cared for? Should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? Young and old lie together in the dust of the streets. My young men and young women have fallen by the sword. You have slain them in the day of your anger. You have slaughtered them without pity as you summoned to a feast day. So you summoned against me terrors on every side. In the day of the Lord's anger, no one escaped or survived. Those I cared for and read, my enemies has destroyed. It's not really a prayer or a confession. It's just like, look how bad this is. How, how painful this is. God, look at us and consider our plight. It's not fair. I, they don't quite get here, but you, you, you sense underneath, 
okay, maybe we, done, maybe we haven't lived as we ought, but surely it shouldn't be this bad, and it shouldn't be this bad. The Old Testament also talks about that, that, that the nations who bring God's judgment, they overstep the mark and, and they too have to face the consequences of that. This sucks, God. Why should it be like this? Why is it so bad? This, this protest in the face of sin and suffering. The Bible is full of this, of protesting to God. This is not how it should be. Why, God? Why? Kerry said she's been reading the book of Job uh, this week. A book full of protest. Why, God? Why is, this like, why is it like this? The prophet Jeremiah does the same. And there are Psalms, too, which, which stand there in the, in the midst of the horrors of this world and protest to God. It is right that we cry out to God and protest the evil which we experience and which we see. I think one of the difficult things for us in the 21st century is we, we do become aware of this sort of horrible evil and violence that is far away. And, and it really can be quite difficult for us to process, we can kind of see those pictures from Ukraine and kind of move on by going to the shops and uh, entertaining ourselves. It's, it's, it's a weird kind of world, whereas for most people, for most of the time, they become aware of the great sufferings and horrors of the world when they are visited upon them. And when that happens or when we become aware of it, We're called to come to God in the midst of the pain and say, why God? Why is it like this? And we're not promised answers, but we are promised someone who hears. We know the, theologi the theological reality of what happened to Jerusalem in 587. It was the judgment of God on sinful humans who had failed to live up to their covenant obligations. And yet it was still a painful and horrible thing for them to endure and for them to encounter. And, and God preserving their words of protest for us in the book of Lamentations, their, their cries of pain, as well as those other places that I mentioned, they're, they're examples to us of how we ought to cry out and protest in our own pain and as we experience and witness the pain of others. But as we do that, as we cry out, we should do so without doing two things. We should never minimise the sovereignty of God. So often, when we experience bad things happen. Our inclination to be, can be to say, well, God obviously is not in control. God is obviously not sovereign, but that's not what the poet says here in Lamentations, is it? It's actually the fact that God is sovereign that makes him a worthwhile 
friend to us in the midst of our pain. And we also need to remember that we live in a different phase of salvation history. This is the good news of Lamentations, if you will, that, that it happens the other side of the cross. And so I want us to remember too that when we experience pain and suffering and evil, and as we cry out to God and ask for his mercy and protest at its evil, we do that without ever losing sight of the gospel, the good news about Jesus, the good news that is good news because God doesn't want you to experience a fate like Jerusalem's in 587 BC for all eternity. There's a sense in which what we read in Lamentations is, is, is sort of literally hell on earth as God's people are banished from his place. But God does not want you to experience that kind of pain. He doesn't want you to feel completely separated from him, unable to enter into his presence, unable to worship him, as he, as he calls you to. The good news of the gospel is that he was willing to go to that place for you. He sent his son, Jesus, to experience this sort of pain, to be separated from his father as he hung on the cross, to die in our place so that we might know his love that sustains always and everywhere. And God's call to us in our world that is still full of sin and brokenness, pain and loss, is to come to him in Jesus to turn to him and not to start doing the good works you'll always fail on that front just as Judah did instead turn to Jesus and trust in him he is the one who lived out God's commands perfectly he is the one who earned salvation for us all and he is the one who by faith brings us into a relationship with God that can never be severed, even by the worst of circumstances. That's the beautiful thing about living on the other side of the cross from Lamentations, is that we know nothing can ever separate us from God. You know, the Apostle Paul had a pretty poor life. A wonderful life in many senses, but if you just go from a purely Western comfort kind of mindset, it, it wasn't a good life. He was in jail a lot. He got chased out of town a lot. He didn't, have a, he didn't really have anywhere to live a lot. People kept getting angry at him a lot. It was a bad life. And if you read some of his letters, he talks about 
the sufferings that he endured for the gospel. And yet he still penned those beautiful words in Romans chapter 8. For I'm convinced that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The world is a horrible and broken place. And yet in the midst of our deepest pain and suffering, God has entered it with us. Lamentations is a great model for us to cry out, to protest, and to point us to Christ. So let us continue trusting him, even in the most difficult and painful of times.